This is The New Right, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. This is Matt Pegas here alone today. Dan couldn't be with us, unfortunately, but our guest today is a popular blogger, default friend. Um, She's a prolific blogger as well as a podcaster. Uh, She's got a tech background, um, but also uh, blogs a lot about social issues, current issues, political issues from what I think could generally be described as a center right perspective, although it's typically very nuanced and comes, yeah, I think uh, default friend also known as Catherine uh, would, would, would uh, you know, would, you'd probably say you have a, a lot of different influences from, from across the spectrum, but nevertheless, um, I don't, I mean, I'll, I guess that could be the first question. Do you think it's fair to, uh, categorize your your words center right um I used to I've like I've I've hopped around with the label a lot um sometimes just to like shield myself from criticism um I, you know to be perfectly honest uh usually I say I'm a centrist so rightists don't accuse me of being an entryist mm-hmm. that makes <laughs> um, sense yeah yeah and it, it's, it's almost like never uh because of anything from from the left right as far as the left is concerned I'm I'm a garden variety a social conservative with with no meaningful opinions on anything else. Uh, <laughs> I guess so. Although you also, and we'll get into this, but you've also been cited by people like Michelle Goldberg from the New York Times. I feel like some people, I, I don't know. Obviously, you're kind of lumped in with a certain right wing or conservative element online. But I think a lot of people, if they just stumbled across your work, wouldn't necessarily know where to place you. Right. I mean, so so what I wanted to say was, I don't think. I don't think I'm political. So I don't think like a political label really makes sense. Right. Like I think I, I I think I come off as so illegible because we're very tempted to like put a political label on everyone. Um, Mm -hmm. That's sort of the, one of the, like the main forms of categorization, but um, I just don't, I just don't think that way. Like I, I, and I think my, my writing reflects this, like when I think about issues, I think of them on a very like person to person, uh, you know, it, it usually through that lens and you can't really politicize that. No. Um, yeah. That, that definitely comes across. And I think it's a, a good way to be in the times we're living in. I mean, um, there are so many complex um, issues in society and a lot of them related to tech and social media, which is an area of focus for you that uh, if you go into it, you know, with some kind of ideology or some kind of agenda immediately in mind, I think there's a lot of nuance that you would miss but yeah I, I think in your work it really comes across that you're kind of you know looking at the issues first and thinking outside the box on them yeah um there's marshall McLuhan used to say something like this like people would ask him um 
you know, what his his theoretical background was or, you know, what kind of like ideological alliance he had. Um, and if, you know, if I'm remembering correctly and quoting him correctly, he said that, you know, he just explores and he just he, he just wants to get to know get to know the issues that he talks about. Um, he doesn't necessarily want to label it in that way. Um, and if yeah. I am not just dreaming up this quote, and it is in fact a real quote, uh, <laughs> it re- it resonates with me because I feel like it's just I don't know. <laughs> oh yeah, did, you know who who knows where I'm going to land on an issue? It's just I I, I kind of just go by vibe. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, Marshall McLuhan. Um, I too, you know, this, he's got a lot of quotes like that where like you can't quite remember where it was from, but um, that really you know, resonates of the truth. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and just by way of finishing up the introduction here, um, your Substack is defaultfriend.substack.com, correct? Yes. Great. And by the way, I guess for purpose of this podcast, do you prefer, I've heard it both ways on other podcasts you've done. Do you prefer to be called default or do you prefer Catherine or? Um, it's up to up to you. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I go by both. Um, I I ha- I feel like sort of like a like a, a mythical creature in some ways, where it's like I have like you know four different names, and you can kind of any one of them will summon me. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Absolutely. Um, I was actually this is kind of a silly question, but uh, it's one I did have on the list. Um, where do, and I, I kind of almost can answer my own question here because I kind of poked around, but where does the name default friend? come from because I originally thought it was like a Tom on MySpace kind of deal or is like this is the friend you'd have by default when you created a new account but is, does it have a, a different meaning than that yeah it has it sort of has two um so initially I um I love the word friend in like many different languages so like a lot of my my usernames ha- include the word friend mm-hmm. um and I also like especially when I created this account sort of like maybe like enamored with sort of like (laughs) the victimization of feeling like I'm you know like I'm second best or whatever um Mm. so the the (laughs) so originally um when I created it it was just sort of like uh you know I'm not I'm not your real friend I'm the friend that you call when your real friend is is busy so it's like a tongue-in-cheek thing and then um it got misinterpreted by Bay Area rationalists to mean like oh, like I'll be anyone's friend. I'll be your friend by default. And I kind of adopted that to for, a, mm. for a while. Um, it was sort of like a project. Like I, I had a, like an open call. If you wanted to hang out with me um, in the Bay, like I would come meet you anywhere, anytime. And the only caveat would be like, if I felt unsafe for, what for whatever reason, or if there's something that kind of dicey about the situation, I wouldn't do it. But otherwise mm. um, it was just a blanket yes. And I did that for like, I don't know, like nine months or something. Interesting. Yeah. I've, I've heard you talk about that project elsewhere, I believe. Um, the the idea being that the Bay Area, and I live in LA, so I can perhaps relate to this in a different way too. The idea being that um, the Bay Area can be a very lonely place or a place without much social fabric when you first move, or was it just even more of a general project than that? Um, I had heard from a lot of people that it was just like, a very difficult place to to make friends and Mm -hmm. I and that there was like nothing going on um you know more sort of like a statement to like being like some kind of like wasteland and I just didn't believe it because there's just I mean you know you have at least right like if you're 
the least sort of generous interpretation is that there's three major cities, uh, you know, in in driving distance of one another. So there's like no, yeah. there's no way to me. Um, and then it's, it's, I mean, it's really much more when if it, in a more generous interpretation, right? Like the community in Palo Alto is different than San Jose is, you know, different than Berkeley and Oakland. Um, so it was sort of like proving like there's one, there's things going on. And two, if you actually tried to make friends, you could. Um, and I kind of like came to the conclusion that it's like, I was right, but other people were right too. Like there is sort of an emptiness there. Like you, you hmm. can make friends and there's, there's definitely lots to do, but it's, it doesn't have the vibrancy of other places in the country. Gotcha. And you are not to get too personal, but you are no longer in the Bay area, correct? No, I, I, I moved. Um, yeah, I was, I, we, we could get personal. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I lived there. I moved there for a, a tech job as, as one does. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, when, I had some other constraints as well. And when those constraints were lifted, I, I, I left. There you go. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, yeah, no, I don't, I don't know. You're in, I mean, I, I, we don't need to like say where you're living now or anything, but do you, do you miss the Bay area? I mean, given what you said about it, you know, how it, some the people who said it was kind of a social wasteland were kind of right, but then it didn't have to be like that. Do you, do you find yourself again, as someone who I, you know, was born on the East coast, moved to LA, um, and kind of settled down here. Uh, have, I like it more every year that I'm here, but obviously I'll probably never feel like I'm really from California. I don't know where you're from originally, but I don't know. Do do you, do you miss the Bay area? Is it a a positive move or, uh, or or Um, more of a negative or, or, or neutral? (laughs) Well, I definitely didn't like it. Uh, the last few months that I lived there, I lived in Palo Alto. I, mm-hmm. I had this like unique experience. I wasn't there for very long, but I lived uh, East Bay, South Bay, a little bit in San Francisco. I really got the full uh, expression of the area. Yeah. Um, and I, so I, I, miss, I miss some parts of it, like some, I guess, like sensations about being there that I think were also like, you know, it was the, the stage of life I was in. Um, like when I first moved there, I had just gotten divorced and I, you know, I really, I was like really sort of like falling in love with like techno optimism and like mm. you know, the, how much people believed in their startups um, and sort of just like this, this like California naivete. Yeah, <laughs> um, for sure. And, you know, there was getting to know all these new people. And also I was, I was a little bit younger. Um, and it was just like this, it was, it was sort of like similar to the feeling of like when you, you move out of uh, your hometown and you go to college and like everything sort of feels possible with yeah. this backdrop of like, you know, an, an often, you know, often grotesque, but often like very beautiful area. Um, and there's no kind of like recapturing that, right? Like if I, if I lived in San Francisco now or, you know, anywhere in the Bay, like it wouldn't, fe- I wouldn't feel that sense of like excitement and like, uh, you know. I can throw myself into like some startup and sure. Yeah. How much has changed? No, that that's interesting. Um, my comparison to that, I guess would be almost the opposite. Like when I first moved to California, again, Southern California, not the Bay area, but nevertheless, I, in the first few years I was out here, I liked it. Uh, but I, but I found myself missing the East coast where I'm originally from sort of missing where I went to college and all this. 
And eventually I kind of concluded or talked myself out of moving, moving away from California by saying like, well, I miss all of that, but I probably as much or more so I miss the stage. Of, I miss college. I miss the phase of life of being younger with everything feeling possible, which, you know, in my twenties, you know, feel I, I'm basically a happy person, but nevertheless, you know, the door, you know, the horizon starts to close a little bit. So I do think it's kind of hard to separate um, phase of life from from where you're living and your perspective on a place versus the phase the phase of your life that you were in when you lived there. Yeah, yeah, I I, I think that's yeah that's exactly sort of where where I'm at with it. I you know I don't I don't feel and it might just be because I'm not old enough to feel this way yet. I don't feel like the sort of like foreclosure on possibilities, right? It's just like mm-hmm. a different kind of uh, I, like, like there's, there's different possibilities, right? Like there's right. certain things that are decided now, like my, my job is pretty set in stone. Like I, you know, I know what industry I'm in for sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, like, I, I've since like gotten back into a serious relationship. So there's not like, you know, Oh, what's next? Who am I yeah. going to end up settling down with? Or, you know, where are we going to live? Like all, like all of those questions have been answered and now a new set of questions are introduced. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to get, I guess, more into the meat of the outline today. Um, and we did, were you able to, we're, we're, we're going to talk about our, the last guest on this podcast was zero HP Lovecraft. Um, and the episode got a bunch of listens and we were going to talk about uh, the gig economy by zero hp lovecraft did you, did you were you able, it's kind of a long story but were you able to read that in advance of today yeah. <laughs> great uh, great yeah I, I read it yesterday and i actually wish that i had read it a second time because um i've been like running on fumes this whole week just you ever drink like so much coffee that like you sleep and you're still sort of like on the caffeine yeah line, definitely you can't remember what happened the day before so like i yeah. that's <laughs> the, the whole week has been like that for me where it's just like I know I'm sleeping, but I just, I'm too, I'm like both like energetic and like forgetful. Uh, and you know, it's like a weird sort of, uh, space. So anyway, all that to say is I read this story at the height of that. And it it isn't, you know, it's a, it's sort of long. It's, uh, what is it? It's like 34 pages if you print it out. Um, you know, so I, I, I wish that it was more fresh in my head, but I left like copious notes on, on the printout. It's, uh, yeah, no, no. I uh, actually had a very similar experience of, of reading it. I, I read it for the first time last week in advance of the episode, not to get too meta on my own podcast, <laughs> but yeah, I was in a very similar headspace with, with the caffeine and, um, and I, I did, and I know what you mean about wanting to read it a second time. Cause I actually ended up doing that, uh, like the night before we did the episode with zero, um, you know, at a soundproof cubicle at work, like after everyone else had left, just reading the story out loud to myself, trying to like, cause it, cause there's a lot of nuances as people who, who've read it know, as, as you now know, um, there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, it's, it's very Lovecraftian obviously, but also very Borgesian. And there's a lot of sort of, um, complicated things and, and sort of books within books and stories within stories that happen. I was just trying to unravel all that and um it, i'm glad i read it a second time because you definitely see more but i still feel like um i've only kind of I, I mean i think that's kind of the aesthetic of it at the end of the day though like that it leaves you feeling like you only sort of scratch the surface of it yeah i i i definitely agree agree with you like there's a there's a lot here. i mean 
I feel weird saying this, but you could probably like, you know, get an hour's worth of teaching out of this story. Right. Yeah, no, I think so as well, given what it um, just kind of cites historically and spiritually even, which we'll get into, but all, but all, of course also as a case study about the internet and the possible future of the internet and the possible future of artificial intelligence, et cetera. And I mean, it's the relationship between you and HP, Zero HP Lovecraft is is interesting because, um, you know, there's a lot of differences there. Obviously, he's an anonymous Frog Twitter guy. You're more public um, and, you know, adjacent to Frog Twitter, but not part of Frog Twitter per se. Uh, but in a lot of ways, I think you write about similar things, perhaps from a different angle. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, this sort of the the bittersweet thing about this piece is, um, and, you know, maybe it's a it's a it's a good thing because, I I get to keep some like critical distance and I can like truly enjoy it as you know as the work is like you know I I've I don't know much about uh about zero HP but one of the things I do know about him is that he I mean I'm you know I'm sure I don't occupy any real estate in his mind at all but should my name come up it's sort of like you know she's an ugly fed and as I was reading this I was like he's putting to words I mean, and, you know, much more eloquently than I have, like things that I, I feel and believe about the internet, or he's sort of creatively expressing things I've read, uh, you know, from other uh, writers or, or thinkers and have, have really, have really liked. Um, and it's, it was like this bittersweet thing, like, wow, actually, we're, we're like, really on the same page about like, a lot of stuff. And it's, it's too bad that, uh, you know, due to the politics of Twitter, I'm sort of collateral damage to, you know, in, in some crusade to gatekeep and make sure that, uh, you know, fat chicks don't end up on frog Twitter or whatever. I mean, yeah, I, I, I wasn't even necessarily aware of uh, the, yeah, Twitter political issues oh, behind no. I mean, that, he's, but yeah. He's, he's like blocked me, uh, called me ugly, called me a fed, uh, you know, all, you know, the, the, all of these insults and I'm, and I'm fine saying it's, it's, it's open knowledge, but I mean, mm-hmm. that corner of Twitter, like really, really hates me. And it kind of just boils down to, like I said, gatekeeping, um, just making sure, you know, and I'm, I'm like too similar maybe, but not similar enough. I'm a woman where there's other complications, but it's, it's too bad because I, you know, originally my only engagement with frog Twitter, I don't write about them. Right. You know, in my yeah. internet studies stuff, I write about Tumblr. I write about leftist communities really. <laughs> um, my only engagement with them was sort of like every now and then coming across maybe like an article in the American mind or like, you know, like very surface level stuff, like a single tweet and agreeing with it and being like, wow, this is actually pretty cool. Like, you know, let me, let me amplify this. Um, But yeah, I got swept like somehow, you know, luck being what it is, I got swept up in it and uh, became a, a person to hate. Really? Okay. I mean, I'm probably just out of the loop on it, but, um, but yeah, I didn't, I mean, cause I know, uh, you know, certain corners of frog Twitter being what they are, you do have some friends that are, you know, everyone, it's obviously it's a big web of people. Not everyone hates everyone that, you know what I mean? Like it's not all sure, collective, sure. But like, cause you do this column with delicious tacos, who's friendly with those guys. Yeah. But I, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's funny. I've joked like the, you know, there's all these labels for sort of the online, right. 
but there, it's really like there's a lot of strange bedfellows. There's not a lot of cohesion. There's like all these clusters that occasionally come together and form this mass. Yeah. But the one thing that sort of unites all of them, it's like if they know who I am, they dislike me. And, you know, I don't think I'm like uh, number, you know, I'm on anyone's mind ever, but like should for whatever reason I come up, they can all sort of like agree on me being, you know, a piece of shit or whatever. But um, yeah, delicious. Ta- like I, there's a there's a few of them like delicious tacos and I are cool. Obviously, we, we collaborate. Um, there's a few other people um, and I don't know how I, I uh, you know, slipped through the cracks, but I'm, I'm thankful um, because I do I do tend to like uh, the people who will give me a chance. Yeah, no, I, I just that's from from my, again, limited perspective on whatever the politics might be. That's that's that would be that would be my um, take is that for whatever bigger picture issues there might be and conflicts, um, there's a lot of people on on yeah. My, I'd say my side of Twitter, but not not exactly. I'm not I'm not necessarily a card carrying member myself, but you know, on that side of Twitter, who who are who who would give your your work a chance certainly. And the, yeah, as you said, there's like a lot of different clusters. Of, I think about this a, a lot. Um, I don't know if this is a change or what the deal is, but like it seemed like you know you could you could map out like broader groups of people who you know have conflicts on Twitter and people ever you know like you know within the dissident right, for example, like pretty much a very few people in like Richard Spencer's sphere are ever going to like interact with the frog Twitter people in a positive way. So like, there's definitely bigger picture groupings of people who dislike each other, but in terms of the smaller scale stuff, it's like, you know, like zero, like you're, you're friendly with Alex Kashuda, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I'm the, I, I encourage her to get on Twitter. Yeah. So there you go. So, and then, and I know zero, likes Alex Kashuda. BAP does not like Alex. You know what I mean? Like it gets so complicated, like who dislikes who and, and yeah, you know, who I thinks mean, who's a fed. That's yeah. the, the, that's the really interesting thing because it's, I mean, you see this with the Encellus sphere too, right? Like mm-hmm. there's no, like, like incel may as well be like a, a meaningless term beyond like the literal meaning of involuntary celibate, like as a cultural or subcultural la- label, because it's like, there's so many groups that fall under that, like a full taxonomy would be like really complicated and nuanced. And the same is true of, of the dissident right. Like I, I call it the online right, because I think that even like the dissident yeah. right as broad a label that is, is also is its own thing that does, you know, isn't the entirety of like the online sort of, or like very online right wing. There's yeah. so, there's so many. And I, I think, you know, speaking of Alex Kachuda, I think it would be like really interesting because I think she'd be the best one at it um, for someone to create like a, a map, like what is, you know, where are the boundaries here? And like, what are the major groups that are represented? Like, I don't know if I could name them, um, but there's definitely yeah, like no, more I, than four or five. Oh yeah, you're right. And it's it's broadening. Again, it's sometimes hard for me to tell on Twitter whether I'm just getting into new spheres on Twitter or whether... Um, something is like genuinely developing, but I think the latter, and I think that um, this sphere has significantly widened and broadened over the past, uh, you know, definitely since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, like in terms of who is making connections with who. And yeah, I think the online right is apropos because I think increasingly there's people within what, what would once have been considered like the frog Twitter sphere uh, who are actually pretty, they're like, they're, the, the whole idea was this is the online far right. 
And increasingly there's, I think, influences from like the not so far right, but who are, who still are kind of like on board with certain elements of the frog Twitter messaging or, or like, you know, respect the energy there. Increasingly um, we see that. So I think, yeah, online, right, is a good, good way of putting it. And yeah, I do think someone could make a chart and it would be a big spider web uh, of different of different people. Um, and again, a lot of those people would hate each other, but every, for everyone who like hates some account, like they're friends with someone else who actually likes that account. Like it's, so all that is to say, uh, I think that, um, you know, the way I try to comport myself online is like, I don't so much worry about reputation and, you know, who's saying what about whom, but, but more so I just try and look for the, for the ideas that seem interesting uh, and try to, you know, um, look at them in their own terms. I mean, that's, that's the way to do it. I, I think like, you know, I, I often like defend some of this, um, like tribalization, um, just because it, I think it helps people form stronger connections. There's yeah, a, there's, it does. Yeah. Yeah. There's like a lot, like I said, there's like a lot of like collateral damage right? <laughs> and there's a lot of like unnecessary infighting and what, you know, friendly fire or whatever, but the, the benefit of it is, you know, I think people will say like, oh, it creates echo chambers, but I think it actually like it creates people who um, in the best of cases, like you really know you're on the same page as and like you get to know each other in a slightly more intimate way. And there's more there's more brotherhood there or, or kinship is probably a better word because there's definitely women involved as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, tribalism is definitely not not a bad thing, even if it does create some of that infighting, but to, to get back, I guess, to the gig economy, uh, what we, we talked kind of, I guess we have talking more about the meta thing of, you know, zero HP and you, et cetera, but what was your, what was your overall, did, I mean, did you like the story? I guess we could start with that. <laughs> yeah. I, so there's, there's parts of it that part of me felt like it would work better as, um, like a just sort of like esoteric or like like just creative nonfiction and mm-hmm. like actually removing um the the narrative element because I didn't feel I didn't feel myself attached to it as a story I felt myself like highlighting certain lines or like certain you know entire passages and feeling like you know he's making like a really interesting point here um but I didn't feel um I feel like as a narrative, it was less interesting to me. And, it, and not that it wasn't well, well written, um, but just in terms of like what it is about it, what it is that made it appealing is really like the ideas and the, the concepts and, you know, some of the world building more than a story per se. Yeah, no, it definitely is that kind of fiction. Again, I would say in like a kind of Voorhees type vein where um, the story is the world building in a sense. Um, and it's not so much about, I guess, plot as, yeah, um, wor- world creation and uh, in, in some ways, I guess, like a philosophic thesis. Um, but yeah, I mean, my, my general read, which feels a little simplistic to say, uh, but my general read on it is uh, that um, it's sort of, li- and this is the, really the case for all of his stories. And we talked a bit about it when, when he was on the pod last week, um, that it, it very much creates this milieu where the internet or artificial intelligence or, you know, the combination thereof is this kind of 
uh, evil, potentially demonic force in the world. Uh, this kind of dark, this like kind of dark Kabbalah type of imagery. Um, and, and basically this notion of um, the internet as a means through which uh, a certain darkness is, is let into the world and can sort of mingle with and potentially invade humanity. Um, it, it is again, a, a somewhat simplistic reading uh, of the universe he creates. And I was interested, uh, you know, and, and the way I guess that crosses over with, with the work that you do is that you also write about, you know, the effects of the internet and of online subcultures on, on society and on individual psyches. And um, I think, yeah, I think there's a similarity there, but also a difference. I think your take is a little less Lovecraftian, obviously, than his. Um, feel free to chime in at any time if, if any of this resonates. But basically, um, you, you've, and I think we on, on Robert Stark's podcast, uh, which I also uh, did with you a couple months ago, um, talked about the notion of like the internet as astral plane uh, or the connections between the internet and um, the occult or esoterica. Uh, and I, I guess my question would be, um, do, you know, is it, was that your reading of the zero story? Is it like kind of a, a, a dark image of that astral plane, internet as astral plane notion? Yeah, I mean, I don't think our takes are all that different. Um, I think he's, you know, he's obviously put it in, like you said, like a, this like Lovecraftian environment, right? Whereas mine are like little, you know, little blog posts or like, you know, this is what I was, you know, I just, I just did six shots of espresso and like, here's, here's what I'm thinking about, right? Whereas... <laughs> Um, I, I will say like one interesting thing. I, so I totally, I totally agree with the darkness, but one interesting thing, and I, I read this essay he wrote for the American, after I read this, I read this essay he wrote for the American mind, um, about basically it's, it's, it's about Curtis Yarvin. Um, and, um, he mentions Tuan, which is, um, it's, so this, this is a, this is a, a quote that I, I highlighted. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so it's an encyclopedia that remakes the world. Um, as its knowledge spreads, Tuan becomes more real than what is real. And the culture of earth is supplanted by this new simulacrum as people increasingly adopt the customs and the languages of the world they have invented. Um, and there's another, and then there's a, a part in uh, the, the, the gig economy where this, sort, this same idea is, is sort of referenced like more explicitly and then later on, um, he he mentions the, the that dark library, um, and it all it feels like there's a strange like sense of like nostalgia where it's like he's aware of the power and sort of how evil it can get, but he there's this like there's this nostalgia for like the old internet or like a desire for for order to be placed upon it or an optimism that it that it can be tamed. Yeah, um, and then ultimately sort of like uh you know like realizing that that's that's not possible and it's mm -hmm. it, and the, uh, like a real sadness to that um and i've always like sensed that with, with mold bug too and i thought that was like an interesting like i didn't i didn't know why tuan was called tuan I had, I had no idea and i thought that was a really like i don't know poignant oh yeah definitely definitely poignant tuan sorry i don't know you may have said this but tuan being from the famous borhi story tuan and ukbar yeah 
Yeah. Um, no, no, absolutely poignant. And I think that, again, this may be just be my reading, like reading zero HP Lovecraft is like, oh, he, these are horror stories about the internet uh, and they're dark. And then like reading your blog, it's like, oh, this is someone who like, you know, you've said yeah, you live and breathe tech. Like there's a, a more, it seems like it should be more positive, but maybe ultimately in 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 zero's work i think that there is uh, some kind of you know uh pro technology or um you know s- some kind of notion underneath the surface about what technology could be you know the positive things it could do beneath the horror and then i think in your work again there's a little bit more of an uh an ostensible enthusiasm perhaps for tech but at the same time what you're really writing about is the dark places this can go is that a fair I mean, yeah. I, you know, here's like a real psycho comment. Like I could pro- like m- maybe I'm like a character in one of these stories. Like I'm in the ocean that he describes, but because I'm in it, I don't realize it's an ocean, right? Like that's mm. the difference between our work. Like the the lack of maybe like the lack of darkness that's there is because it's like this is this is the sea I'm swimming in. So I can't I can't zoom out and and, and look at it that way, right? Like because mm-hmm. it's it's just everywhere. Whereas he's zooming out and he's analyzing the, the whole system for what for what it is yeah and, no that 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 could that could be the case i mean i don't think you're totally blind to it if we're having this conversation but sure, nevertheless sure. it's yeah you, as you said it's, it gets down to the the sort of the medium as well he he as you were saying yeah you write usually relatively short blog posts whereas these are novellas essentially that that zero right. is writing so there's just also, a difference yeah a lot of my a lot of my writing is sort of like this is what like I myself am experiencing. So even if there is like some uh, awareness to it, it's still like grounded in, um, you know, if it's not me experiencing it, it's someone who, I, who I've interviewed. So there's something that's still like, it's, it's there's like a presentness to it. Yeah. Um, and it lacks that sort of, you know, more macro analysis, I think. Yeah, no, that makes it. So yeah, I think it, could probably be pretty much summed up as just a difference in the kind of writing that you're doing. Um, but I guess just by way uh, of making one last comment on, on this general realm of issues we're talking about, I saw on Twitter earlier, uh, I think this is someone who's your friend. He's, I wouldn't call him a friend because I don't know him, but uh, I, I, he's definitely welcome on the pod at any time. Uh, Barrett Avner posted a poll uh you know i think it was him anyway it was like what is the internet um you know is is the internet a place of demons or angels and most people had voted for demons uh it was like 70 percent but i i i do think there is this kind of dichotomy where we have this sense that you know there, there could there's like this darkness to the internet but also um i, I don't know i guess the possibility of of something better um, and I don't know how you would respond to that question. I, it would seem in your work, I, I guess, yeah, if we could put it that, that simply, like, do you think that overall everything that's going on technologically, social media, is this just this demonic, terrible thing that's happening or is, are, are you more optimistic than that? Um, so I, I, I'm not super optimistic. I mean, I, so I do, I do agree that like, it can be harnessed for good if there's some if you know if it had more order if it had more governance Mm -hmm. um 
and definitely like not in the way that it's 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 been expressed like I don't think we've had sort of like the right kind of governance I don't think like think like the the censorship stuff is <laughs> you know like really really what I'm talking about um mm-hmm, like yeah. there there's a sense that like I think the internet was better for people when it was like more local um yeah. when it was more more of a, a supplement um you know, it's always sort of served this like social laboratory purpose uh, for people who are like really, really plugged in, um, you know, where they're sort of like they, they it, it's, it's funny, um, this more real than real uh, phrasing. Sherry Turkle also used that to describe the, the Internet and her, her writing about early uh, digital communities. Like there's definitely always been a contingent of people who have been like addicted to it. And that addiction can happen, you know whatever what like whether you're on a text-based role play or a forum or a news group um but for like the average user um it you know it would help you con- connect with people in your local community or, yeah. or 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 buy things i mean like i think like this more simple like um like where there's like way more uh constraints um it was much more fun and then it was it was also much much healthier yeah, no, I hear about this mythic, uh, better version of the internet that's before my time, unfortunately. But, but yeah, you mentioned Curtis Yarvin earlier, and my understanding of him is that you know he was an early, early adopter, you know, working in tech at just the right age, uh, and that this was an internet that he he was familiar with. Yeah, I mean that's what that's what Urbit's is kind of yeah, know, right. I, I know next to nothing about Urbit to be honest, but I should probably learn more because so many people in our sphere, uh, seem to be users. Yeah. I, so I actually, I, I myself like don't, don't use it because somehow it like got fucked up on my computer and then I never, Mm. I never went back to, to fix it. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of like urban maximalists, uh, in our, our general area on Twitter. Yeah. I'm tempted to ask you like what Urbit even is, but I'm actually going to not because I feel like that could monopolize the entire (laughs) rest of the conversation. Um, or, or screw it. I don't know what, what, cause I, I, it's someone who knows nothing. Like what is it, is it like, and I'm going to sound so stupid, which I don't like to do on my own podcast, but is it, um, it's not like, it's not like a dark web. It's, it's not like a browser. I mean, what, in a nutshell um um so how would you, tra- yeah so so if i understand it correctly um they're in an ideal world like they're trying to create um both a new computer and an, a new operating system but where it's like it's peer-to-peer and then you can meet in groups and each each person's uh you know, place is called a, is, is called a planet and you're, <laughs> you're, you know, the sigils, like those weird little names that people put in like their Twitter, Twitter bios or whatever, like, here's how you find me on orbit though. That's the name of the planet. And that's how, that's how you connect with other people. So it um, is kind of like social media, a social media network, but with more of an actual technological ground. Um, I don't know if I would call it a, a social media network. I, it's more like you're being given your own little digital plot um, and you can, you know, do with it what you want and people can visit you and you can meet in groups. Um, I don't use it though. And I don't know 
that I'm even explaining it correctly, right? Like, oh yeah, no, that's why that's why I didn't want to ask because I know you're not necessarily like the expert on it, and I probably could ask a million other questions, but uh, we can we can leave Urbit um, behind. I should I should learn more about it for myself. But some of what you said mentioned about it ties into I think other themes that we were talking about and that we we can continue to talk about because. Yeah, you mentioned like the, the the sigils, the names people have, um, and and that that kind of like concept of, of renewing a sort of localism. All of that seems in line uh, with with some of what you talk about, and I did want to kind of uh, veer off and talk a little bit about occultism and esoterica and your experience with that. Um, but I guess to make this transition more seamless. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you, you mentioned this idea of, of the internet. We talked about it a bit with, with regard to zero HP, the, the idea of the internet as a kind of astral plane or potentially being that And you, I know you've said to me, and I know you've said it elsewhere. Um, you know, you, you, you've done research into the occult and you've obviously done research about the internet. Um, and these two things are integrally linked in your mind, if you can comment on that. Yeah. Um, so I, I feel like like one major issue people have when they talk about the internet is they don't know what it is, right? Like it's, um, you know, is it a place? Is it, uh, is it a communication tool? Um, I think like most of the people who talk about, uh, you know, like the philosophy of tech or like the philosophy of the internet, especially like more respectable people, uh, and by respectful, I mean like in academia or, you know, like using their real name, writing books, whatever. Um, they, they are like partial to the idea that it's a communication tool. Um, and they describe it as like it, it mediates communication, but that doesn't feel like it captures the full scope. Um, you know, a lot of like the consensus seems to be really pushing back on the idea that it's a place um, because people are like, well, you're not like, you, you're not going to the internet, right? Like, it's sort of always on, it's, it's persistent. Um, it doesn't, it's not really anywhere. Like you're peering into it. It's probably closer to like, like is a line, you know, is the, the telephone line a place? Mm -hmm. Not, well, not really. Right. Um, but I think like that, but with the internet, it's, it's a little bit different. Right. Um, I use the astral plane metaphor because it's always there. You choose to, you know, log on, so to speak. Um, and also a lot of the warnings people give you about if you're astral traveling are similar to things that you would want to keep in mind if you're going online. Mm -hmm. um, you can't really, you don't know what you're going to encounter. You need to stay grounded. Uh, if you astral travel too much, there's a, there's a, a real chance of, um, you know, struggling with embodiment. You, you're, you, your soul might never come back. You might not be able to reground. Mm -hmm. um you don't know what demons are up there i mean there's there's so many it's it's unknowable um you know it's it's not always visible to us but it's always impacting us i mean there's there's all these things right um and that's that's why i think it has a lot of it has a lot of characteristics of a place but it's not a physical place but that doesn't mean it's you know how many times can i say the word place but that doesn't mean that yeah not, yeah that it isn't one and it's i, I think we have like very limited tools to 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 describe things like that and the only one really right now we have is uh is is the astral plane which is you know one of the things that i i at first like my knee-jerk response to the gig economy was like 
well, he keeps using this ocean metaphor. And I kind of like the ocean metaphor. Um, that's something that McLuhan used. There's a lot of like McLuhanite sort of themes here, like, a, you know, technology as an extension of oneself. Um, you know, the, sure. his, his understanding of, well, whatever, I'm not going to go through all my notes here, but um, anyway, I, my need to like, it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's not an ocean, but then I realized the way, he, the way he understands uh, the ocean is sort of the way I describe the astral plane. So I was like, all right, I'm with it. I like it. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I think, the ocean. <laughs> I think so. And I don't know if Lovecraft him, uh, not zero, but the, you know, the actual HP Lovecraft, I'm not sure if he ever used that same kind of oceanic metaphor, but I feel like he might have. And yeah, it's definitely in, uh, you know, in that, that quote, the internet is an ocean we invent as we explore. It's definitely ocean in a, in a, you know, dark unexplored territory. Um, sense or even even as you said it kind of almost like a, a realm more so than a place um I, I do think it's being used in that sense and i do think it's it's in line with what you're talking about um but to pivot slightly uh although not really because it's very much part and parcel of what we're talking about i um i knew that you were interested in the occult uh, which i am as well and we've done a couple episodes of this podcast uh, semi-dedicated to that. Uh, I guess the last one being with a writer named Brad Kelly, um, who I'm not sure if you're familiar with. He, you know, he's not as, as big as Zero HP Lovecraft, but uh, anyhow, we, we did that a few episodes back. It's, it's a kind of a, a growing interest for me as well. Um, definitely not something that I was that interested in as a younger person. It's been something more I've gotten into in my 20s. But um, I tracked down this podcast you did, I guess like a year ago with uh, a podcast I never heard of called Talk Gnosis. Oh yeah. Listen to more. I thought it was, it was a good, it was a good episode. Uh, if you can find anyone of my listeners can find it on YouTube. Um, and, uh, it seems to encapsulate pretty well your history with some of this stuff. And I, so I won't make you rehash all of it. Um, but, but did, you know, in, in a nutshell, sort of what, uh, what's your general take on, on occultism and, and your, and your history with it? Um, I think it sort of drives people crazy. Uh, because there's like a lot of like misinformation or sort of mm-hmm. like sloppy engagement in literature with it. So I kind of like, I stay away because like even, um, you know, even if, if like none of this stuff is real, you know, even like buying it a little bit, I think kind of messes with your head. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's very useful to read and understand one because it's it's everywhere and it informs a lot of different people's understandings of a lot of different things like everything from from like tech of course like literature film you know and there's philosophy it, it's it kind of pops up all over the place yeah um i uh, i had a lot of a, a lot of fun with it i was like oh this is you know kind of embarrassing but i was i was wiccan for a long time mm-hmm. um which you know it's i <laughs> I, I thought that I thought the community aspect was was like I don't know I, I, I totally bought into everything and like there was something about it that uh, made life easier in a way right like I, I knew what my limits were I knew what to be afraid of um, I you know I, I had a group of like-minded people and we all thought we were you know it was us against the world right. uh, so there's also that, <laughs> that yeah. aspect of it Definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah, I do. I definitely think there's, there's obviously a lot of knee jerk misinterpretations of what occultism even 
means and it's you know i've already talked about it on on this podcast and on my own Substack, so i'm not too afraid of the way it comes across but it is precarious you know people are going to think a lot of things about you if you say you're into that stuff they you know at worst they'll think that you're uh, a devil worshiper of some kind or, or whatever or just stupid or whatever the case might be um but uh definitely I have, I, that is obviously not my understanding of it. And I, and again, on that talk gnosis podcast, you did, I think you did a pretty good job of laying out, um, you know, your, your level of interest in it all. Um, what really stood out to me is you described, um, you described occultism uh, as kind of a full syncretic worldview, like not just being like something that one dabbles in per se, but rather uh, when you kind of look at things from that perspective, it's a full on worldview, perhaps even a full lifestyle uh, that you in, that one might engage in, um, not necessarily mutually exclusive with traditional religion, um, but definitely kind of all encompassing in that way. Uh, and, and kind of just like a full way of seeing the world. Is that does that still is that still generally something that you'd hold to? I mean, it it, it can be. I mean, like definitely with like different like a lot of like Western esotericism like definitely shares um, shares a single view. I don't know if like occultism proper, right? Like you, if there's no sort of like pan occultism, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I, definitely. And I think a lot of people are occultists and don't really realize that they're occultists, yeah, uh, no, which is, which so is true. the other thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, may, you know, <laughs> maybe w- would, that you know, that's that's part of the the internet as the astral plane thing, right? Like, part of what I think could help us, you know, make our relationship with the internet healthier is like, what warnings do people give about the astral plane, and should we, uh, you know, would <laughs> could we right. apply no. that to the internet? Yeah, that's um, that's fascinating. Um, I'm gonna have to make a note about that because. Yeah, I think, and I, in, in, I, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not nearly a, as prolific a, a blogger as you. So I, I write like one, one thing every few months, but in the, in this piece that I wrote about the occult and my own experience with it, or my own experience and my interpretation of, of the occult or, or however you want to put it, um, that I published a couple of months ago, uh, I said something to this effect. I mean, when you're, I do think it's important when delving into that stuff to understand that you are playing with fire and i think uh that uh, not not that i'm like such a literal believer in all of it all the time but nevertheless when you're tapping into that stuff i feel that you are you're tapping into some kind of you know esoteric energy right and it can kind of fuck with your head uh i can it i demonstrably has made people do some very stupid and at times very you know destructive things um, so I think that, I, I guess if, if I were to, to kind of define occultism, it would be, it would be that sort of spiritual matters that our, are, are, are better understood by, by, you know, fewer people that are, are not for a general public audience, uh, sort of by definition, because they, um, well, I, I'm going to kind of veer off and, and not totally define this because we are trying to put stuff into words that's hard to put into words, but nevertheless, you know, it, it's, it's stuff that's hidden and that can be tapped into, but that is probably best left hidden in a certain respect. And um, it's very interesting to think of the internet as something similar to that, because maybe the curse, maybe this is a way of understanding, maybe even zero HP Lovecraft would agree with this. Uh, the, the, the gift and the curse of the internet is that it's like this incredibly powerful 
tool um, that probably is negative for the uh, you know the psyches of most people who use it uh, that that can be used to do amazing and good things, but that really prop maybe never should have been for as public an audience as it is, or at least it shouldn't have been rolled out as fast as it was because yeah, you're, when you're going online, you're playing with fire in that occulty sort of way. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I definitely agree with that. And there's different like levels of this too, like maybe like more benign, um, you know, like I think like here, like here, here's an analogy I used recently in, in a, in a piece. Like, I also think there's a problem with like, you know, being able to try whatever restaurant you want, right? Yeah. Like there's that the classic like optimization or, or paralysis of choice issue. Um, like I think there's real there's real value in like not having seen every picture of the ocean that could possibly exist. Yeah. And like only knowing the, you know, the one that, but you know, the luck of the draw, right. That ended up, you know, either like a postcard or uh, the actual vision of the ocean. Like if there's, there's something to that, like you don't need all this information and that in itself, just like the amount of stuff and the volume of stuff like that is corrupting too. And it feels somehow like more, more benign, right? Like, I think like you can watch too many movies. You can watch too many Netflix shows. You can see too many pictures of the same, you know, pink cake, right? Or mm-hmm. whatever thing. Um, and that, that's just the tip of the iceberg. But, you know, that's, that has, a, I think, a real corrupting effect on people. Yeah, and it's, it's all you know, right at our fingertips all the time. And I think that's part of the issue. Um, but the other thing you said on this podcast about uh, occultism that resonated as you kind of described, you, you described the uh, the uh, worldview one may engage in um, while, while dabbling in, 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 in occult ideas as pre-modern. Um, which also resonated with me, I, I guess. Um, would you say, hold on, let me just pull up my outline here. Uh, you know, there's kind of like, the, I, I found it interesting to learn uh, you as someone who are at least somewhat socially conservative on many issues, uh, you know, kind of also have this interest in, in the occult. And um, it was interesting. That's also been my experience of it as well. I don't think there's kind of like a new age, liberal stereotype but I, I found in my readings on this that it's actually very not trad per se but that you're going to be reading a lot of old books dealing with a lot of old ideas uh dealing with a lot of thought about like archetypes shall we say which i you know i don't i don't know if it's the entire program of the progressive left to flatten differences between people but certainly um <laughs> that is an issue with the modern left or something that i react against um, I've always been struck by that element of not even just occultism proper, but like any anything adjacent to it is how sort of traditional and pre-modern it is in its understanding of things. Yeah, well, I mean, because it it, it exists, or it's the it's the shadow of whatever the dominant belief system is, mm-hmm. and that's what built that's what creates esotericism, right? Like it can, like you know it can't exist without the church, right? Yeah. Like, so of course it's going to be, you know, in a lot of cases, like very traditional. And I think there's like, what I think is really interesting, like speaking of the, the, the left is, 
uh, they adopt this like weird like alter like alternative view of history that feels like very sort of reminiscent of uh, of like occultist alternative histories. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's also a huge like phenomenon of like occultists just like straight up like making stuff up, right? Like yeah, and, and you know, I'm not talking about like uh, you know uh, unverifiable uh, spiritual experiences, but like. Um, you know, Wicca is sort of a bad example because it's not taken seriously in the occult community with, you know, for good reason. Um, and it's also like kind of fluffy is a term that they use. But, you know, Wicca has this sort of mythology that it's uh, an old religion and it's, uh, you know, uh, this is how things used to be. I mean, most of neo-paganism is like this, which is uh, for listeners like slightly different than occultism, although mm-hmm. there's obviously a lot of overlap. Um, and the left does this too, right? And it's like this really weird thing. And they do it with occultism as well, where it's like, oh, we have to decolonize this or like, this is a close practice. And they're often talking about things that are, um, you know, like you said, like uh, very like syncretic and, or, you know, take taken from, uh, you know, different uh, belief systems, to- in some cases, like totally invented, um, I, I got, I really got into it on TikTok with like, I don't know, a 12 year old. This is so embarrassing. <laughs> um, yeah. But they were saying something like, uh, I think it was about tarot. Like tarot is like, we have to respect tarot and decolonize it. And it's a closed practice and it belongs to, um, I think, I think she was saying like, it belongs to Egyptians maybe. Oh yeah. That's an idea you hear, whatever. Right. That's, that's not true. That was completely made up um, in a French, uh, 18th century French text. Tarot is actually from the Italian card game Tarocchi and it has nothing to like, there is no Egyptian lineage. I was like completely made up all like comedic or, you know, Egyptian occult uh, beliefs are for the most part, you know, invent like seven, you know, 1700s, uh, inventions. Yeah. And there's just so much of this through um, uh, Stregoria, which is like Italian witchcraft, totally invented. There's no history of it. Um, the folk magic that people claim to have existed and then get sort of folded into occultism, um, you know, at best is stuff that was, you know, that exists in Central America, but like certainly not um, in Catholic Italy. I mean, there's just so much so I'm I'm going on a total tangent. no uh, it's it's I appreciate the tangent yeah it's 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 interesting, <laughs> um yeah there there is that that's kind of what has struck me uh, again getting into this stuff later in life slightly later in life you know not a lot of people get into it as a teenager and I I didn't is all I mean but um yeah that there is a it's obviously the I I don't know why exactly just the areas that it's popular yeah it is traditionally uh anti-organized religion I guess uh there's a there's a kind of tie-in with a lot of uh liberalism and and yeah I've seen that sort of attempt to um to, to 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 for lack of a better term make it all woke or make it conform to that um, but as with, and it's not even, this isn't just something that happens with, happens with occultism. It happens with the major world religions as well. Like there's this attempt to kind of retrofit them to a progressive ideology, but, uh, you know, the more you dig into it, the, the, the more that that seems very, um, ham handed and, and that actually, um, you know, something much more traditional is, is what's at the heart of this stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're definitely right that like they try to sort of, uh, you know, shoehorn <laughs> these belief systems in. I mean, this is a huge issue in uh, the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, right? Mm. Um, there's lots of schisms uh, because people think that the church is becoming like Disneyfied, um, yeah. and, and and the most extreme end of this, you have, um, you know, Desnats, right? Which uh they're you know deseret nationalists and they um you know they think that mormons should have their own country again and they're they're not um fundamentalist latter-day saints but they're definitely much more to the word of the church um and you know older texts um and then you know on the most progressive end you have mormons who you know are are pro-gay in some cases uh you know, making allowances for abortion and just, just things that like, you know, are totally against the, the faith. Like at a, at a certain point, it's, it's, you know, it's okay to believe in these things, but like, how could you, you know, at, at what point does it stop being Mormonism? Um, yeah. And at what point does it stop being, you know, any, any other religion? I think this is a, this is probably an issue that a lot of different uh, uh, Christian denominations are uh, experiencing. Yeah, no, I think so too. At what point is uh, is the uh, the faith or the spirituality more answerable to the politics and vice versa? I mean, I I actually have a somewhat pessimistic view on that. I think in a lot of cases, you know, so, some version of the politics or kind of uh, at least making peace with the powers that be, um, sort of comes comes before uh, the faith and and comes before the spiritual spirituality. And uh, that there is, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not judging anyone in particular for this. Uh, I'm maybe not in a position to do so, but just that, you know, it strikes me that a lot of, a, a lot of religion has kind of become used to sort of bolster the, not to get too conspiracy minded, but the kind of world order as it is. Um, it's kind of just the, uh, you know, a, a spiritual justification for that. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think some of this, you know, maybe to 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 rein in the con, you know the conspiratorial uh, vibe we have, but like, I mean, I think a lot of this is because even for some like clergy members, like church is like a place that you go, you know, a few times a week if you're if you're clergy, and may, maybe once if you're a parishioner, and you know, there might be a community and there's holidays that you celebrate, but it's not. Uh, you know, we were talking about like occultism being a, a worldview and a lifestyle. I think a lot of people like, you know, do Christianity, but they don't live Christianity. Yeah. Um, and the same is true of just any faith. And you can understand why, like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things getting in people's way, um, you know, and, and how this, on the other hand, in extreme situations might open the door to cults because yeah. the, the, the things that make it easier for you to be more immersed in your faith, um, open also open the door to exploitation so i mean like when i i I think the most religious i've ever been um in the sense that i you know my 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 connection to to faith has ebbed and flowed but in the sense where it's like this is my identity this is informing how i navigate the world top down like this is you know the whole of my being is it was when i was was wiccan and i was meeting with these people almost every day um my diet was specialized and we all had the same weird diet. Mm-hmm. 
we dressed similarly. Uh, we lived very, we lived close enough where we could visit each other all the time. And, you know, there is certainly uh, weird aspects of that. And it got very strange. And I, you know, I, I, I should, I, I feel compelled to say I was super young, right? Like, I, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, not, you know, this isn't even behavior I engaged in my mid or late twenties. So like, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I grew up, but, um, you know, I, I think that that's, but that's what it takes. Like you, you, yeah. you need that level of reinforcement. Otherwise it's like, like there's no cohesion anywhere. Like what's going to, what's going to reinforce it or, or validate these beliefs if you, if you don't have the discipline to do it yourself. Right. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think, uh, I think that explains my, you know, attraction to the occult more recently and, um, and perhaps a lot of other people's as well, because, um, we are definitely living in a time where the popularity of occult ideas is on the rise again, you know, there's always ebbs and flows to this and we're seemingly we're very much in a flow, uh, right now with it. Um, but, but I, I yeah, think it really is though. You, you know, like, I think what's interesting is like, how many people are really engaging with occult ideas and how many people are using it as a front for one aesthetics, right? Like a way to decorate their apartment or, you know, something <laughs> to, to hoard or collect like crystals. And, and this is a very woman centric thing, but two, um, a way to navigate the world or like categorize things, but like in a very sort of like shallow way, like for example, yeah. like, um, this date didn't work out. Oh, he's a Virgo. I never get along with Virgos. Right, right, right. Yeah. Or like, you know, it seems like the emphasis on occultism is like placed on buying or collecting, uh, fortune telling and manifesting. And then, then maybe like really easy, unnuanced explanations for why things are. Sure. I do kind of view that though as like, yeah, that's like the, the very crass sort of tip of the iceberg, but I, I suspect just also based on people, you know, that I've talked myself and then other people I've talked to have kind of gotten more into it more recently that, yeah, that, that is kind of a crass tip of the iceberg, but perhaps underneath, you know, there's people who are getting more deeply into it. Um, you know, maybe by its very nature, we don't exactly know, you know, what, what the extent of people getting into this stuff is. Uh, but, but no, I hear what you're saying though. It's definitely, I definitely don't think even, you know, even most of the people who are, ostensibly into occult stuff are necessarily doing any kind of deep dive. Um, I mean, I do think there is a weird thing happening. And I don't know if this is like a cult. I mean, this definitely isn't occultism, but like um, where people like even on like, even in situations where you wouldn't expect it are really starting to have like questions about embodiment and like naturally like mind, um, mind body dualism. And I actually kind of weirdly think that's like, the sort of like the real fault lines of the culture war, which I, you know, yeah. it's, it's about tech, but it's, you know, a level deeper. It's, it's really sort of about how we exist in our own bodies. And I see that being more common and maybe that sort of lends itself to like certain occult thought, but um, I don't know. But I, yeah. I also, you know, I, I'm also in an echo chamber myself. So like, <laughs> sure, sure. Who's to say? <laughs> Well, yeah, the TLDR of uh, of the of the of the of what I wrote about of about the occult, and again, what I think is sort of behind some of my my interest in it is, um, yeah, just that notion of uh, 
you know, coming from a place of feeling alienated from, from, you know, the religion I was brought up in and, and the world religions, there's something in the occult emphasis on, um, yeah, basically living the stuff or like really embodying, um, here used in a different sense than you were using it a second ago, embodying some of these ideas and integrating them into ritual and into practice and a very, a very pragmatic, hands-on, non-dogmatic, but rather like hands-on, you know, what is going to work uh, for me. Um, I think that's the appeal of it to me is, is how it contrasts with like the, you know, the commitment involved in, um, you know, really getting involved with a major religion, but instead it's kind of more, it's, you know, somewhat syncretic and it's kind of about what, what works for you. And, but also like you can totally embody it at the same time and, um, you know, take it up as a practice, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I and there's definitely like uh, I think how you know how much you could step in and out of it <laughs> is appealing to people. And you know, I will say I said I said this before. I think a lot of people are drawn to sort of like especially like you know Crowleyan like ideas, right? Like mm-hmm. every time I see like Ayla tweet, I think like you you know you hate religion, but you would love uh, you, you would love Alistair Crowley. Yeah. <laughs> I guess my last question on this would be again going back to that podcast you did um is that project you were doing on obsidian where you were kind of charting different ideas and how they relate to to each other is that still underway uh that uh, had like a very tragic end so obsidian oh, no. obsidian's like similar to Rome research right it's when mm-hmm. it's like it creates these webs um and I thought it was really cool so I would take notes on books and then um see like where like certain phrases would come up a lot or certain um concepts uh but it's totally offline right so if if the computer is gone the project's gone and the computer that i had um been been using to work on it just just broke when i mean oh no became totally unusable and i have no idea what happened um and it, it was unsavable and i lost whatever was on that machine and then it it died I moved on. (laughs) (laughs) Such is life, I guess. Um, But before, definitely want to touch on in this conversation, um, the the topic of sex negativity, uh, which you have said, if there's one topic that you'd like everyone to remember you for, uh, it's this one. Um, You and I talked about a bit about this on Robert Stark's podcast as well. So I don't, you know, want to get too repetitive here. Um, but, you know, it's definitely a pretty prominent idea on, on your, your blog. Um, and I would, I would tie it in personally, I'll let you kind of speak to it in a moment, but I would tie it in personally with some of our foregoing conversation and that you're talking about that element of the internet where it's like, it's not good to be able to watch every movie or see every picture of the ocean. Um, you know, what is the version of that in dating, uh, it seems like there's a bit of a, you know, paralysis that has set in there, not to, you know, anticipate what, what you'll say, but how would you, um, you know, this, this idea of sex negativity and the reaction against sex positivity uh, is kind of, it's the thing that got you on the radar of the New York Times even. Um, how would you sum that up for someone who doesn't know? Um, 
so so my my argument there is 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 kind of it's kind of difficult right but it's because it's a it's slightly different than similar arguments that are also being made um so basically the the thought that i had was we've had this sort of reign of um open-mindedness about sexuality and more than open-minded justness just sort of just complete lack of of restraint at all no you know no limits this doesn't mean that people's actual attitudes or behaviors on the ground reflect this but sort of the zeitgeist has been this for a long time and a certain percentage of people usually uh you know college educated uh you know coastal you know the coastal elites right like mm-hmm. <laughs> basically who we think of when we when when we when we say that word did adhere to the to this to this lifestyle um and they got kind of maxed out on it because it doesn't really make sense and it it doesn't it's not it's not really healthy and there's mm-hmm. there's, a, there's many different ways that it that it's unhealthy um like one like one of the 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 core tenets of this is that like um you know sex is it's called sex positivity but it it's you know they promote like sex is is neutral like it is um it's like eating in a restaurant is a a metaphor that's often mm-hmm. used um but that's not true right like yeah. the the there you it has a different impact on you than eating in a restaurant um it's there the there's way, you know, there's way more moving parts with the sexual act. Um, so basically like, yeah. So basically my argument is that um, there's going to be a, a, a vocal minority on social media and also sort of the zeitgeist narrative later layer is going to realize sort of the limits of what they've been promoting and move when the pendulum is going to swing back to, um, uh, you know, a more sexually conservative uh, perspective and that's what's going to be in vogue and that's what that's going to define the conversation it's going to be passe to be sex positive yeah no it kind of feels like that that could that that may well be underway um there's kind of you, you talk you've mentioned like you know there's little li- little signs here and there from different different elements within the culture everything from like uh Billie Eilish talking about how porn ruined her brain to you know just an increase of different accounts on different platforms sort of starting to be vocally against I mean part of it also is just like sex isn't shocking anymore yeah Um, and a lot you know a lot of my predictions are sort of like hinge on like what would shock people and it I mean it's really easy it's low-hanging it's low-hanging fruit I think people just like don't want to believe it i mean here's a here's another sort of uh i I think we're well into the the wave right um another sign is um you know about a month ago i get an email from and i couldn't believe this dan savage of all people really yeah and he's like you want to come on my show this is actually a very sad story he's like you want to (laughs) come on my show and talk about this because i'm rethinking sex positivity and of course i was like you know any attention is good attention i was like hell of course yeah um and you know anyway so we have a a little back and forth i I don't hear back from him obviously did not go on savage love but today um he you know he dropped an episode with a a a much more respectable uh 
young lady of, uh, you know, who's questioning sex, you know, uh, uh, but I mean, the point the, 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 the one, the point of the story is for me to, you know, publicly lament about uh, my dissertation, <laughs> but also, but it's, it's a big deal that Savage Love has an entire episode dedicated to maybe we were wrong about this right. thing we've been promoting for literally 800 episodes and before that thousands of newspaper columns yeah um, gosh uh, you know of all people and it's for him it's probably it's i don't even know that it's a real value shift i haven't listened to the episode but i would bet it's just it's not selling anymore people aren't interested what they want is is something else and that's that's what's that's what's trending yeah well i you know this this is another big topic but in terms of what that something else could look like i mean do you have any predictions uh one one um sort of friend of the pod is Justin Murphy, who has, and I don't know if this has ever actually been executed like to the full degree, but he is famous, famously or famous within our circles, uh, has an arranged marriage service. I mean, do you, do you see people going to things as extreme as that to kind of find their way out of the morass of uh, sex positivity and dating app culture or or do you think you know it might may have maybe there'll be more subtle things or i don't know just generally what it, how do you how do you see this going so it's hard to say like how behaviors are going to change um you know I, I i used to work on the arranged marriage thing with him but i i really kind of i did it i say yes yeah. to everything um and i finally it was just it felt the, the cognitive dissonance was true i was like i can't <laughs> in good faith do this um <laughs> it's a great idea though i mean I just yeah it's interesting it's a great thought experiment <laughs> it really is yeah right so it's it's, it's hard for me to predict how people's behaviors are going to change because like the reality is like you know a lot of the stuff there's sort of like these moral panics about like a minority a, a very visible minority and a, a, you know but a minority nonetheless are actually engaging in it, right? Like do most women have, you know, this is very crass language. And I think I might've said this on Robert Stark's podcast. Like mm-hmm. do most women have quote unquote 70 bodies? No, yeah, obviously, no, you know, no. most women sleep with three people and then they get married or they die a spinster and whatever. Like that's, you know, you know, that's how it's always been. But the people we hear about and there's enough of them are sort of that like only fans tier or like, you know, sort of casual sex every weekend type of person, right? And so I think th- th- those people, the people who are always sort of behaving in the, the way of the zeitgeist that make us think like everyone's doing this, right? Yeah. And then everyone ends up tacitly ac- accepting that kind of behavior, even if they themselves would never have never, um, like those people's behaviors are going to change. Um, I think it'll be a mix of like, um, marrying young and certainly getting divorced, uh, having kids, you know, probably in sort of this like reactionary way to like prove something. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've had friends already who, I mean, like in, in recent history, like who have met someone and like been encouraged and wanted to, and by the grace of God did not because of, you know, random personal tragedies, like tried to you know marry strangers. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it works, but most of the time um, it doesn't. I think it'll be um, that, you know, like the genre of tweet where someone just sort of bragging about, you know, some dude they slept with who humiliated them. Yeah. Like become kind of boomer tier. Um, call her daddy type programming will slowly become uncool. And, you yeah. know, and, and again, like who knows how this will be reflected in the average person's behavior. Um, 
you know, how is sex positivity reflective? Me, it's it might alter your beliefs, but it's really a zeitgeist thing. Sure, sure, yeah. No, and there's this whole. I guess the the big unknown is like how, yeah, how old sort of Gen Z and younger even sort of grow up to to inherit this? Will they, you know, get get married younger, have kids younger? Probably that seems a pretty safe prediction. But at the same time, you know, there's like yeah, Billie Eilish saying, you know, poor porn ruined my brain. These are kids who have been exposed to pornography much younger. So there's, in some ways they are the, you know, victims of it. So that may have whatever effects it has, but at the same time, yeah, it seems like it will kind of, things will trend back in a somewhat more sexually conservative direction. The porn thing is interesting and I think slightly different. Mm -hmm. I I, I can't help but wonder if like, it'll reinvigorate porn in this weird way where it's like a lot of people be saying, I'm no fap or like, I'm against this. This is porn satanic. Um, and you know, full disclosure, I'm like, I'm, I'm basically anti-porn and yeah. I've been pretty vocal about that, but I don't really buy that. Like, especially like most, um, you know, most people who are trying to be provocative or who are, um, sort of promoting these beliefs because it's, it's sort of the thing to do that they'll really like quit the habit and I wonder if it'll make it more taboo and therefore like more enjoyable than it's been because it's like there's more shame associated with it mm-hmm. you know and like right now it's just kind of like too available and you could you know watch it in broad daylight and whatever and that kind of takes the fun out of it um so I wonder if like it's loaded up with more shame if it'll actually have a weird effect of people using it more so yeah no more regulation <laughs> sure yeah no things are always on that kind of funny continuum where and we actually we uh, on another recent episode that that my co-host and i did with uh how are you familiar with the account howling mutant on twitter oh yeah he's very funny yeah yeah he's hilarious uh and we we got into talking about horniness and porn and all that with him and and we we kind of got into the subject a bit how like the more sexually non-conservative things are the the less of a power pornography and you know sort of has but anyway that's really neat to hear there are just another another recent topic we, we did cover but yeah um relatedly um dan again couldn't be on this podcast tonight but both of us are big fans and we mentioned this earlier big fans of the column you now do with delicious tacos and occasionally paul town who is also a great uh, contributor there. Uh, but this, what would you call it? Uh, you've, you've long done sort of advice columns, but this is um, specifically like sex and dating advice with delicious tacos. What, um, what's sort of the origin of that? And can we expect it to be a long running thing? Yeah, uh, we haven't done one in a while. And that's sort of on me for just being oversubscribed. But um, so originally I didn't, so the origin of the advice column is I've, I've like told like several convoluted stories about this, but like the truth is I just like, I had a crush on a guy who wanted to, to, to be a writer. And I had, I had an events list on MailChimp and I had all of these uh, subscribers, but I couldn't do events because of coronavirus. So I moved it to Substack and I gave, like I gave him my, my mailing list and I was like, we could do an advice column together mm-hmm. um, because uh, you know, that's an that's a sort of an easy way to write for an audience and um it's you know it's it's low pressure and it was sort of something that he did unsolicited anyway um anyway so um for for various reasons um that didn't that didn't work out but 
I kept writing the advice yeah. column. And then I stopped because I kept getting the same questions over and over again. And it was just, I, I you know, it didn't feel worth it. Um, and then uh, at the same, this happened concurrently, um, E. Jean Carroll, who is uh, a, a, a famous advice, yeah, she's, she's famous, a famous advice columnist, um, encouraged me to start my advice column back up and Forever Mag, uh, which is a lit mag out right, of LA, yes. New York, yeah, asked me to write an advice column for them. And I was like, oh, the timing's good. Um, but people weren't sending questions uh, because I, I, I think I didn't have the, the name recognition or the popularity or whatever with their audience. And they were, but Delicious Tacos did. And they're like, would you be offended if we uh, paired you up with Delicious Tacos um, and it, you know, it was, it was to generate more interest. And I was like, oh, of course not. You know, I, I, he's, I, he's a, he's a very cool guy. And I, I'd, yeah, I'd been is. like, yeah. I'd been a fan of his and I don't know, at, I, I just read all of his work in a single week. And I, I don't know, it was just sort of living rent free in my brain. So I was kind of excited for it. And then it just, it, it did really, really well, um, and better than anything I'd ever written. And that's, like, uh, yeah, go, go on. Sorry. Yeah. He's like, you want to continue doing it? And, um, we, we did, and we get like the most bonkers questions. Um, oh, it's, it's so good. It really is. Um, and I, it's funny that it, it kind of has that a lot of great things do, I guess it kind of has that random origin where it's like, Oh, they just wanted to get like more name recognition behind it. But what it plays out to be is that the, the way that your advice, uh, tacos and yours, the way it, contrasts i mean i think you guys are on the same page about so much but like the way that it contrasts is so funny and so like productive to like kind of looking at some of the issues or questions from from different perspectives the basic thing is obviously like you know male and female perspective but uh you know more, more than that like you know tacos is like kind of post manosphere and i mean I, I don't even know how i characterized your your views per se the kind of you know blend of conservatism with, you know, a certain degree of compassion that I think you bring to all of your work. Um, it all makes for an extremely, extremely entertaining read. So I definitely hope that we see more of it, <laughs> but no, it's, it's really good. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, it's kind of like, I, I don't know the, it, if, again, it feels weird to say it's about myself, but it feels like it's, it's like going to your mom and dad, like, you know, yeah. Yeah. Your no. mom. <laughs> <laughs> Your mom doesn't want you to go have a bunch of random sex with strangers um, and wants just wants you to be happy and like tucked in the bed. And your dad will, you know, wink at you and pass you a condom. <laughs> no, that's exactly what it feels like. <laughs> well, so where would Paul Town um, fit in into that? Well, I don't know. I won't ask where he'd been in that equation, but how did how did Paul Town get looped in? Because he, he also adds a pretty hilarious flavor. Yeah, he he was he just asked. He was like, can I can I join in? And I was like yeah what bucket of course um and I had talked to him I did a podcast with him and it was like I was surprised it was like weirdly good I was like surprised at how much He's like great, conversational yeah. chemistry we had um and just like I don't know the way his mind works it's just and his he also has this these books that are like basically they're basically advice they're like aphorisms and also just like surprisingly deep um yeah. So I was yeah, like, he, yeah. he'd be really good at this. Um, and he, and he was, and now 
I guess he's still on Instagram. Is he still on, on Twitter? Or is he's, he still- I think he got kicked off Twitter. He may be under an account that I'm not privy to, but I do know he's on Instagram. I might bother you for, if you, if you'd be willing, I might bother you for his best like contact later. Cause I definitely would love to get him on this podcast. I've never spoken with him. Um, but I really do like his books. I've, I've only read, I, I've read one of his books as like more like a novel called John, which I found very funny. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely want to get him on new right at some point, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, yeah, no, his stuff's really good. And he is also pretty funny in these advice columns you guys do. But, uh, but also I just want to comment, uh, it's in- forever mag, uh, that is interesting. Um, I didn't, I didn't necessarily, are you gonna, they, 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 it's not like a magazine that publishes like weekly or anything, but they, you know, they will have more uh volumes is will you probably be contributing more to forever mag um maybe i i don't know i i'm sort of like in a weird place right now where i have more on my plate than i can realistically handle um and i've been like like i dropped the ball on something recently um and i'm just like i so i i'm i'm sure i could pitch something to them but um yeah there's just sort of too much to to be a responsible shepherd of yeah sure sure i mean yeah well you definitely keep busy as is obvious to anyone who who follows you but no forever mag see i i don't know that much about it but i did go to their uh launch party where delicious tacos read in person um the other week here in la which was very cool so i'm excited to see where it goes yeah i want to come out to la and meet him um you know it's 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 weird like every now and then um like dream a lot about Twitter, right? Like very, I mm-hmm. get very ashamed to admit, but every now and then I'll have like a delicious tacos dream. <laughs> my brain like doesn't know how to imagine him. So it's just like a composite of just like dudes, you know, like it's just like a generic white guy. And every time I have a delicious tacos dream, I'm like, you know, there was the, the, the faceless guy in khakis. That's, that's how I imagine you. Faceless Interesting. In yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I guess he didn't get like face docs fakes based on this event necessarily, which uh, is good for him. I don't think he worries too much about it, but yeah, no, uh, I, I've now met him a couple of those because uh, as our listeners know, we did an in-person, he was nice enough to, and this, it was actually from him. I didn't ask him to meet in person, but he, he was nice enough to, offer to to meet with my co-host and I when my co-host was in town to an in-person podcast which was which was a lot of fun and, and he's a he's really is a great guy yeah he's he's cool he's he, I, he has like a sweetness to him definitely I think, like, yeah people write off uh for some reason but it's even you know it's I think it's even apparent in his like more sort of like vulgar fiction you could tell there's like like a really good heart there definitely yeah yeah well, we've been talking for a little while now, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. But if you have time, I may ask like one or two sort of current event type questions, if that feels good. Yeah, let's let's do it. OK, so I guess. Uh, well, the main one is, um, have you been keeping up with the uh, like, there's like that variety? And I know that you don't necessarily consider yourself part of the new right or national conservatism whatever you want to call it but um have you been keeping up with like uh you know there's that variety insight article not variety insight uh just variety um what's it called yeah that variety article that like referenced curtis yarvin and uh 
and a bunch of other people, including like the Fed Post and like some smaller podcasts. Yeah, yeah, it was it was Vanity Fair. Um, oh, not yeah, I always confuse Variety and Vanity. Yeah, right. Uh, they may as well be the same. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I read that piece. Um, you know, it's it's. I mean, I think that's such a that's so illustrative of like this is a really big scene and people don't really yeah. know what to make of it. Like, would you ever in a million years, and, and I, and I love these guys and I, I've been on the fed post, but would you ever in a, a million years, like call them like a dissident, right. Or new, right. Podcast. I mean, like, to, like, that's like, why would that be the, the, the podcast? Why? And another, you know, honor Levy, she's great. Wet brain's great. I don't know that I would call that new, right. Right. You know, yeah. it's like, a, but but I could understand from like a bird's eye view why someone would make that mistake. And I'm not even someone who has like a great handle on, on the, 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 the clusters of groups. Right. But it's just so it's, it's so disorienting that it's just, Oh, Oh, internet. And they're not really left-wing uh, and they're kind of edgy and they all like, you know, you know, they all seem to like Anna Katchian. So it must be that that's, that's what the, that's what the dissident right is. Right. You know, it's like, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. No, it's a little, a little all over the place. I mean, cause you had that article and then I don't, I, this, this, I only learned about like a few hours ago, but I guess um, Michelle Goldberg, who has also referenced your work um, uh, kind of followed up. It was basically an art, an op-ed about the article called like the, um you know so, some negative take on like the rise of reactionary yeah, chic okay so you did see it um yeah. and she seemed somewhat um condemnatory of it although yeah it was kind of a similar similar deal where it was kind of just a random grouping of different people referenced and you know not necessarily the most astute take on what any of this really yeah. is yeah, I think she. So this is a point that I've that I've been making. Uh, like even if you even if you Google Michelle Goldberg's article, reactionary chic, uh, you get an article I wrote in November called hmm. "Hipster Reactionaries." Right? Like, I, oh. I and there's yeah. another one called like "Woke Cancellation Mobs Will End." I agree. I I mean, like I said, this is a very basic, low hanging fruit take, which is like if something becomes too institutionalized then whatever its opposite is it becomes the cool thing and i mean it, like of course it's just that's that's just what's gonna that's just what's gonna happen like that doesn't mean that there's no such thing as a cool leftist or a popular leftist but it it's it's not it's it's not the same right like there were there were cool girl uh squares kind of you know like or what we think of as, as a square in like the 60s and 50s um but there was also like this like you know people who defied that and you know were taking birth control and uh well maybe not birth control but you were yeah. having sex or you know wearing weird stuff um so i mean that's i mean that's she's right but it's just such a like of well of course uh, this was what this was bound to happen what else was going to happen we were just going to have a you know nonstop march of uh you know like hip people who also look like uh you know people in hr you know yeah and then then there's the other sort of like obvious side of this uh, like between classes people want to differentiate themselves so if certain things become too aligned or like too common um 
you know, too expected from lower classes, the upper classes and the people who aspire to the upper class, which includes the sort of like downtown scene. And it's, you know, always has been this way for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to like, both of these groups are going to adopt whatever it is that makes it clear. They're not part of this other group, right? They're not part of the lower, they're not plebes. So that's, I think that's like another sort of underappreciated quality of this, this whole vibe shift. Yeah, totally. Oh yeah. That feels like the vibe shift. Uh, this definitely feels like it's part and parcel of that. Um, yeah, no, I was, you, you basically answered the question I was going to ask, which is kind of how this may or may not tie into something like sex negativity, how it's basically just, you know, a vibe shift going against something that had been very much oversold, um, which is, you know, basically progressivism. Uh, and, um, yeah, I think for me, both of these articles, uh, I have a basically positive take on them. I think that they're surprisingly fair. You know, they're not smearing anyone as like a Nazi or anything and kind of just present these people more or less as they would present themselves. It's just a question of like where, uh, you know, how, how wide does this go? Like, is this, you know, there's a degree to which the press can kind of influence or even make reality. And is it like, is is this whole notion that like this is now the subculture that you hear people talk about like you know the conservatives or, or right-wing people are in the new subculture you know that's been a talking point for for years like is it is it now really becoming real in like a sense right down to like where you can live in brooklyn and be into this stuff um in some ways it kind of feels like it is becoming more real than ever <laughs> i mean I, so I agree that the press creates reality. I mean, I think that that's that you really see that bear out with wokeness. Um, and there's like a whole weird sort of life cycle of that. Um, and they certainly reinforce and, ele- you know, elevate and amplify smaller trends and make them seem bigger than they are. <clears throat> At the same time, I think it, I think this has been the case for a minute. Um, you know, I think the real, can- and it's, it's the real canary in the coal mine was, was Red Scare. Um, and you know, I've, I've been saying this, like it's, they, they serve like multiple purposes. And I think that's why they get, they always get evoked in these articles. Right. Yeah. Um, one they're so, they're so obviously, um, like ideologically unstable, right. That like you can use them and sort of discredit, um, any sort of, uh, the, you can discredit this new, right. Um, but also like, they really are illustrative of people who like, you know, maybe Anna Katchian is like more, uh, you know, more intellectually curious or something or like more, into, more, let me, let's say it this way, more intellectually invested. It seems like Dasha doesn't really care as much and sort of just got swept into whatever. They really like, they're seamsters in, in a bit, in a big yeah. way. Um, and I think that's like, you know, once, once they sort of open the floodgates, then, it, it was clear that, oh, this is, this is what people are, are actually, actually thinking. And once you have the, you know, this, you start seeing like the, like dirtbag left or whatever, like once they started adopting like diluted conservative talking points, um, I mean, that was another canary in the coal mine. Like they, they've made their whole livelihoods on, you know, being leftists, so they can't jump ship, but they can sort of, play with play with these ideas safely as a way to to 
show that they're in, you know, in the in-group, of course they fail at it, but I, you know, all of these things sort of uh, give you a vision of the, the future. I think anyone who's smart, anyone who's, a, who's really forecasting or even wants to like do the culture war grift should be looking not at the new right, but what's after that? What's the next thing? And of course, I think the next thing is, uh, you know, what is tech doing to, to have, you know, our embodiment? Like what is going, you know, transhumanism? I think that the anarcho-primitivism, I think these are the topics. That really? Okay. On the, yeah. yeah. Mind-body dualism, all of these things, uh, you know, cyborg theocracy, right? Like I, uh, as Mary Harrington likes to say, luxury Gnosticism, those are, that's the next thing. Like forget the right, for, that's over. We got the Vanity Fair article. The next, if you're smart, you're brushing up on your Illich and uh, you're Lull and you're McLuhan and that that's the the next big thing, I think. You think so? I mean, yeah. I mean, will that ever find its way to 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 a really large audience or or maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe it's just the next thing subculturally. Watered down version, sure. I mean, yeah. like as we realize, you know, how much tech has impacted our li- life, um, you know, in sort of the same, like, does reading Neil Postman really change your situation? No, but like, did, does reading Marx? Absolutely not. So it's, I think it's gonna be a similar sort of relationship. And do you see that as kind of bridging out of the somewhat transhumanist elements within the new right or, or um, you know, the, the techie aspect of the new right or that's just a completely separate um, so I think there's like three different groups here. You have, um, you know, basically like the, the Luddite group, right? I think that, so there's, there's two, like there's a, a right-wing transhumanism and like a right-wing uh, like Luddite yeah. chain, but, it, and there's a, there's a left-wing Luddite and a, a left-wing transhumanist. Yeah, totally. Um, but I think like the three basic groups will be the Luddites, um, the 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 more left wing transhumanists and then someone in the middle which is sort of like the like into like crypto decentralization transhumanism but like more uh you know less sort of wacky uh more sort of like like if you're familiar with like praxis society they're they're doing a charter city they're sort of at this weird meeting point where they're like kind they're like retro futurists kind of yeah. Um, so that's, that's, I think, is like the third sort of like dark horse party. Gotcha. Interesting. Well, it'll be, be interesting to see how this, uh, how this plays out. Um, it's not a topic of, it's not a topic I know a lot about, but, um, you know, I, I, I believe that, uh, you know, technology isn't going anywhere anytime soon. There's not going to be some solar flare. So I do think we will continue but neither journey. was, was <laughs> capitalism, right? You know, right. but people still there's a real like, uh, you know, affectation towards anti-capitalism. Yeah, um, and that's I mean, I've, the other thing is like so much of this is just people like you know needing to have some kind of like a superficial intellectual project, right? So these are just sure. things that people <laughs> will be talking about and blogging about how it changes behavior. I mean, that's anybody's guess. Totally. Yeah. Um, as a sort of final question, um, and I don't know if you must really have any hot takes on this, but it's kind of very much in the news and perhaps relevant to a lot of what we've talked about. What What do you think of Elon Musk acquiring Twitter? I'm surprised that he bought it. Um, yeah. 
because I thought it was gonna, it was just attention seeking. I mean, there's a real chance that it still is attention seeking. Um, one thing I, I, and I said this on another podcast recently, I think like one thing people don't appreciate is like Elon's actual engagement with these, with the companies that he um, ends up owning or, you know, is uh, CTO at or CEO of like, they, it's, in some cases, yeah, he really runs the place. In other cases, it's it he doesn't quite have uh, it doesn't quite look how you would would think, right? Like my my instinct is that um, you know a place like Tesla, for example, is probably more similar to Oracle than Stripe, um, and you know uh, by that I mean it's like cubicles and. Uh, you know, not super fun and like maybe like kind of disorganized. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. So I don't know, maybe maybe I'm being too too hard on him, but I, I don't think it's going to, I think he's mostly doing it so he could tweet about it is what I'm trying to say. Okay, no, interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I would like, uh, I, I think that the general take on my, in my general corner of Twitter is that like it's, and this would be my take as well. I um, mean, you know, I don't, none of us really know what he's going to do, um, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a positive change. You know, you have some, someone new at the top and someone who is at least willing to pay service to the idea of freedom of speech and freedom of expression and, you know, all these accounts coming out of the woodwork. Um, definitely interesting times, but I, I don't really have, I don't really have like any solid predictions. I was just curious given that you are a tech blogger, you know, if you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I think like we're probably going to have a period of it's going to feel a lot like, you know, pre-Trump admin, mm-hmm. but I don't know who knows, who knows how long, how long that'll last. I, I, I also just think we're kind of, you know, while all these people are being brought back, we're also burnt out on the culture wars as we, we are. Them. Yeah. And there's certain things that I think will persist. Like, um, detransitioner discourse is is only going to get bigger, but I also think detransitioner discourse is going to filter into being about tech's role in our lives. Uh, you already see it, like when detransitioners, um, a lot, you know, it's it's focused on, of course, puberty blockers and 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 healthcare providers, but also there's a lot of talk about Tumblr, like a lot, um, and it's it, but it's also not like you know, it doesn't sound like the YouTube radicalization line. It's, it's kind of a different, a different argument. Um, and I think that's kind of a preview of what's to come. Oh, you mean like, um, detransitioner, like away from, from being transgender basically. Yeah. Yeah, And, um, I did have a couple of things I was going to ask about that, not to, not to belabor the conversation for too long, but, um, yeah, no, it it is interesting how, how you 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 write a lot about how Tumblr always comes up in these in these conversations as something that really, I mean, with the sex positivity too, how that was kind of at the heart of of a, of a lot of um, what was happening during the 2010s and people moving in sort of regrettable directions that there may now be a backlash against. Yeah, I mean, tum- Tumblr played a played a huge role, um, and you know, my main thesis about this is like one like. I think in 2013, like Tumblr was like the most, uh, like it ha- it had like a like a crazy amount of people between the ages of like 13 and 18. It was the most popular site for that for that uh, demographic. Um, but also, um, Tumblr and Reddit 
both played a really interesting role when digital publications started to move away, like basically started to slash budgets um, and like move towards like a model where like they were paying freelancers like $50 a pop, right? Mm -hmm. At listicles where like they would scrape stories from Tumblr and Reddit. And it was usually pretty obvious if you were heavy users of each of these sites. And it happens today with Twitter and TikTok. Um, And it's because they don't have the budgets for you know, reporters need to produce a certain amount of stories. They don't have the budget to, to have them do real reporting. And it's easy to just pull things from online. But the problem is they're not immersed enough in these communities to do like real internet culture reporting. And two, um, you know, they, they need to generate clicks. So what happens is they, they see like two or three similar um, kind of, you know, wacky posts and they invent communities off the back of that and it, it and the you know that amplifies something that was originally very small and that creates new communities um, and that's how things get memed into the conversation um, what's really interesting is you know certain certain publications um, maybe aren't consciously aware of this but have protections against this happening so like I write for for one pub that that uh, to for something to be a trend, you need to prove it's a trend, even if you're writing like mm-hmm. a like 500 word <coughs> excuse me a 500 word blog post or a listicle or something like a you know even something that's sort of designed to be clickbait. You it can't just be three or four people. Like you need proof that like lots of people are doing this. Um, and maybe that's also the case at a place like BuzzFeed, but like you know, in the 2010, the early 2010s, that definitely wasn't the case. And I'm, you know, I'm not the first person to say it, but I'm the first person to say it over and over and over again. Like it was such a problem that um, even PBS reported on it. Like BuzzFeed's just like straight up making stuff up because they're <laughs> scraping stuff off Reddit and Tumblr. Um, and yeah. I don't know how this got memory hold because it was just like, it was like in the news. It was a huge problem. <laughs> yeah, I know for sure. All right. Well, we're kind of coming up to like nearing, nearing the two hour mark. So I don't want to keep you forever, but um, do you have any, any other uh, comments or things you want to pitch uh, before we close out? Um, when do you think this episode will be posted? Uh, next, uh, I pr- maybe like Monday. <laughs> Does that sound good? Okay. Um, so I was going to say like, I've been, um, sort of like half seriously trying to like meme myself into like getting an interview um, for the internet culture reporter position at the New York Times. Right. I saw that. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's like, it's so ridiculous. I can't, like, I can't even take myself seriously um, as I do this. Uh, I wish, but I was going to say like, listeners like try to make this into a thing, but uh I, I can't, I n- never, it's just like, it's too silly. I can't, I no, can't do uh, myself. I mean, uh, I, I I'll, I'll leave that in the recording uh, if, if you're okay with it. Cause I think it's a, I think it's a great idea. And I think that, you know, we can, we can manifest meme, meme magic energy. <laughs> to, yeah. I mean, it, I keep just like listening to like the, the Phantom of the Opera overture trying to envision it. <laughs> This will happen. This will happen. <laughs> <laughs> no, Godspeed. Seriously, I mean, I you know, 
they, I, I think the New York Times would be lucky to have, uh, you know, reporters like you in their corner. So I know that I know that like, yeah, you're right. It's it seems crazy that someone from, gen, you know, our broader sphere of Twitter could 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 be at the New York Times. But at the same time, you know, who knows? So, no, we will uh, send out good energy. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. Sure thing. All right. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on. Um, and I hope you have a great rest of your night. You too. All right. Take care.